Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Live from the 6th and Peabody studio and across the OutKick network, this is OutKick 360 with Jonathan Hutton, Chad Withrow, and Paul Kuharski. Show is flying by today. Final hour is here across the OutKick network. Good afternoon to you from 6th and Peabody in downtown Nashville. Glad you're with us for OutKick 360. Plenty of NFL news and Major League Baseball's trade deadline comes up in an hour. A lot of news already making the rounds. And the biggest, we were waiting on Soto to be dealt. He's headed to San Diego. San Diego. San Diego. Yes. Uh, Padres picking up him, Josh Bell. Uh, they're, they're in. Padres are all in. They're, they're going for Don't it. Don't know if it's going to work, yeah. but they're trying. DeGrom they're trying. is back uh, this evening for the Mets. Uh, a lot of headlines across Major League Baseball. And uh, love being on and having the opportunity to talk with uh, uh, two uh, baseball greats coming up this hour. We've got Jim Laritz in roughly 20 minutes. Right now, we say hello to pitching legend Kurt Schilling on Outkick 360. Kurt, great to have you on, man. Hope you're well. I'm good. Thank you, guys. So, DeGrom, the, the headlines in New York are his return gives the Mets finally their dream rotation. Do you agree? And is it at the perfect time? Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. So I'm going to caveat this with the fact that I'm a huge DeGrom fan. I love watching guys uh, on that end of the spectrum pitch. But if I'm a Mets front office person, if I'm a Mets baseball ops person, if I'm a Mets fan, I am planning to get to the postseason without Jacob DeGrom in any capacity, just because over the last two years, his health has been such an enormous issue um, with and it's, it, it never seems to be conventional, you know, tight elbow this or a little shoulder that. It's, it's these things. And, and you find out uh, as he gets a little bit farther. I don't think people understand how late his career got started. And he's a little bit older than everybody thinks. Um, and, and so him bouncing back is a huge, a huge uh, question mark. At the same time, he's back. So you're going to go turn through the rotation with him and Scherzer both, and that that's, can't be anything but fun if you're a Mets fan. Yeah, you were a guy in your career that you you wanted to stay in the extra inning. You you wanted to to work that pitch count up, and didn't want to leave the game most of the time. Um, I don't know that you'd be allowed to do that in today's game, the well, way they yeah, the, the way they have, manage things. But yeah, I would have. I would have some some acrimonious conversations. <laughs> no, no, no. And, and it, 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 but but I was raised differently. Yeah. I was raised. I was raised in a sense. You're a starting pitcher every fifth day. That's your nine innings, and until that nine innings is done, your job isn't all done. And so I took a lot of. There was there was probably no more enjoyable 
uh, event for me on a baseball field and shaking hands with my catcher on the field after the ninth inning. Yeah, and did, so do you see that mentality? I guess one would describe it as old school, but do you see yeah. that in any any pitcher no. that you're watching today? None? No, there's a, the, the young kid for the Marlins um, who Alcantara? is a horse. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the kid, he, he's somebody that's somebody in the minor leagues got a hold of him and, and made him understand. I was all, again, as a starting pitcher, the most important statistic for me was start was innings. I, I, because if you if you put 245 innings under your belt, all the other numbers are going to take care of themselves because you're not going to be out on the mound to get things done if you're not throwing quality innings. And so my my spring, you know, the, every spring when that, when someone would ask you, you know, what you you know what what's the biggest thing you want to win 20 games this year? And I keep I always I learned to respond, well, I'm going to make 35 starts. So you tell me which 15 I'm going to lose <laughs> because that, that and so you 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 have to kind of. But that, again, that's in the upbringing. And the fact of the matter is, Evansville doesn't exist anymore because organizations don't want it. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think the one tragedy for for. Um, for baseball, I, I can't. It's hard to watch anymore for me um, because I can't handle watching the starting pitcher come off the mound in the sixth inning and tipping his hat after getting 16 outs. And, and, but but the fact of the matter is, the game sabermetrics has has I think enhanced and at the same time taken away from the game. It cost the Tampa Bay Rays a World Series, um, and, and sabermetrics doesn't translate to October. It never will, and and, and so I think you're going to see teams that understand that. And, and I think you have to be a forward thinking, listen, Geo, Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer, when they came to my house, you know, what seems like 50 years ago, they were so far ahead of the curve um, when it comes to, to the sabermetric stuff. And, and, but I think one of the things that Theo brought as well was, I think he had a very beginner's understanding of clubhouse chemistry and that, that, that intangible that sabermetrics and Ivy league people in baseball cannot put their hands around and wrap their heads around, which is clubhouse chemistry. It, it's real. It exists. It matters. And, and today the trade deadline is one of those days when there's more clubhouse chemistry impact on today than there is at any other time during the season, because you've got a slew of teams who players are saying, what the hell are we doing? We didn't trade for anybody. We're giving up. And then you've got the other teams who like the Padres who are, you know, in a sense, all in. I want to go back over a year to the spider tack controversy um, and, and what this meant to pitchers. Uh, and it's the first chance I've had to talk to a big-time pitcher since then. When we're talking about Garrett Cole losing 200 RPMs when he, when he was making his adjustment, how many rotations of the ball are we actually talking about? And how much is that actually affecting? I know it's got a lot of mental to it. But how much is it actually affecting the pitch? Well, I, I can't answer that. I never used it. Uh, I never, I, it was never, I mean. But how much are those 200 it, RPMs actually affecting the pitch? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a very simple mathematical equation, right? You've got uh, the ball traveling 60 feet, six inches in a that predetermined period of time. Uh, and how many rotations does it actually take? between out of your hand and at the plate. It's different for a breaking ball than it is for a fastball. I know that. And, and, you know, but, but the, the point you alluded to is kind of a, kind of an offhanded point, I think is the primary point. It's all upstairs because if you, if you, I can't tell you how many times I was on the mound and it was more than once and less than 30, but how many times I said, you know, I really don't feel like I should throw this pitch. 
and I threw it and I watched some fan die for a souvenir uh, as it went into the bleachers. And I was like, yeah, probably shouldn't do that again. And I did it again. But it's it's there's so much mental to this. In this day and age, that's what's happening. This pitch club, all of these rule changes and things, they only affect pitchers that suck. Because <laughs> it, 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 the fact of the matter is if the pitch clock impacts you, you're not a good pitcher. Because good pitchers don't work slow. They never have. Um, good pitchers work quick because on on the dog day in the dog days of August and September, their team's on and off the field faster than everybody else, and their teammates appreciate that. Um, good, they work fast because umpires are calling balls and strikes. Umpires love guys that work fast. It's part of the game. Um, and all the other stuff. Though these all these rules, they're, they're really honestly, they don't impact pitchers that have talent. Kurt, I, I'm sitting here listening, and I, I can't like I'm thinking to myself if I were Kurt Schilling. Uh, or any of the best pitchers of your era, and I had an opportunity uh, already with a superhuman talent to just see what it's like to use spider tack in the in the bullpen. I would I would sure do it just to see what I'm capable of. I don't I know how you didn't do try it. Well, I couldn't. Do, here's why: because I was, a, in a sense, I had three pitches, three and a half pitches, but I was a two pitch pitcher. I was a fastball split guy, and my fingers I could not afford to have my fingers be sticky. Because when I threw my split, the ball needed to come out of my hands very naturally. And, and anything tacky, that's why I, I had trouble with rosin as well. Um, I could never let it get on the inside of my hands because I, I needed that ball. My split had to come out true to rotate like a fastball. And if I had stick on my finger, if I had any kind of stick on my fingers, it wouldn't. And so that was all. But, but and so I, I, a guy like in my generation, a guy like John Schmoltz or somebody that had a, a phenomenal slider, they, you know, I'm, I'm sure that that matters to them. And it clearly was a big deal to Garrett. Uh, he got past it, which is good to see. But but I I just, it was never something, um, same thing with a spitball. I know some guys, you know, I'm still convinced that Greg Maddox won 4,000 games with Vaseline as his second best pitch because the ball came out of his hand and did stuff that it's never done. And I made, I played catch with him at the All-Star game just to find out. And it was like playing catch with Tim Wakefield. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the movement he got off of. But the fact of the matter is, all of these things are, are, um, are just, they're secondary things in a sense that if they, if they become news items, they become news items because the player chooses for them to be exactly that. What, what, what do you think about pitch comms? How would you have handled <laughs> that with the, with the catcher and, and the pitcher relationship? Well, so uh, you got to understand a couple things. First off, I threw probably close to 700 innings in the minor leagues uh, before I, I got to the big leagues. I probably had anywhere between 10 and 20 complete games in the minor leagues, uh, a couple close to 200 inning seasons in the minor leagues. Um, guys are finishing the season now with 192 innings. That was usually my innings count coming into September. And so, uh, it, it, but, but it gets back to, you know, and I know this kind of sounds like the angry old guy, get off my lawn speech, but the fact of the matter is the, the, the amount of money in the game now has made it so teams can't afford to leave their, their number one picks in the minor leagues to pitch. They need to get them to the big leagues to get that return on the investment. What they're failing to understand is that those kids are going to get hurt far faster and far earlier without those innings in the minor leagues. I learned how to pitch in the eighth inning with a runner on third and two outs in a one-run game in A-ball in Savannah, Georgia. I, not in Dodger Stadium, because when you learn, I don't ever want, as a pitching coach, I never want my pitchers to have to learn something for the first time in the big leagues. 
that's a, that's a recipe for injury and a recipe for failure. Follow Kurt on Twitter at Garrick38. Kurt Schilling, our guest on Outkick360. You made mention of the pitch clock. I, I hate the fact that it could be necessary, but I can't stand these slow guys. You say they're, they're slow because they're bad. How, how did it get so bad over time? And I understand it's first and foremost on the pitchers, but who should have reined it in if players weren't self-policing it? Well, I don't know. Wait, players used to rein it in because if you took too long to get in the box, Nolan Ryan threw one in your ribcage. Yeah. You know, that's changed. That's the game. But what about changed. the other side? How do you rein it in when it's the pitcher taking too long? Absolutely. But generally, it, it you got to understand, the minority of the, I, I would argue, and I have no statistical backup, but I'm going to tell you from experience, the, the it's a very small minority of pitchers that are causing this clock. Pit, because, again, pitchers that work slow are not good. They may be good for a period of time, but they cannot be good consistently over time because it, it, just, it, it doesn't. I, I've never seen one. It just doesn't work that way. And and there's a lot of reasons for it. Like I said, when you're playing in St. Louis in the middle of August and it's 140 degrees on the on the field, the last thing you want is a starting pitcher that's taking two minutes between pitches because your team's going to get and, – and, and players in my era, uh, and I think before, you know, in the last couple of years, I w- you would have guys say, dude, you got to pick it up. You got to pick it up. This is ridiculous. We're out there 15 minutes for a three up, three down. This is, you know, and you did that. I don't know that that conversation takes place anymore. And I got to tell you, part of the sentimental me uh, is still in love with the fact that baseball was the only sport and is the only sport without a clock. Same. And that's gone from being uh, a nuance to a negative because of television, number one. And, and probably primarily because that's where, where baseball is getting all, almost all its revenue now. Um, and that's I don't know that that's such a great thing, but, but it's also uh, being tailored to the generation it's, it's playing in front of, which is the immediate gratification TikTok, Snapchat viewer who wants their entertainment in 30 seconds first. So I'm watching The Captain, the docuseries about Derek Jeter's career, and you popped up in the latest episode going through the 2001 World Series. And I'm sure you're going to pop up in the next part also because they are now transitioning to the 2004 season uh, where you are, you are a part of the Red Sox. The big part of the series is this divide and feud between A-Rod and Derek Jeter and different ideologies between the two. A-Rod is presented as the guy who only cared about stats and he had great stats and Jeter presented as the guy and he's presenting himself as this that only cared about wins and would do whatever it took to win the game, and that's all that mattered. What was it like facing those guys? And when I say those things of how it's presented, what are your right. first thoughts about, about both players? Well, well, I mean, as a player, when I played, I don't remember anybody ever played with liking Alex. And, and, and that's just because I think a lot of it had to do with what – I, I would argue that one of the, the truest places for character uh, is the clubhouse, the locker room. You can't bullshit people in the locker room. We're, we're together nine months. We're together usually 12 to 16 hours a day. Um, you can be fake for about a week into spring training, and then it all goes away, and everybody figures it out. And um, – I think there was a lot of uh, a lot of people looked at Alex as just a complete fake and what he what he presented himself as. Um, 
and, and you know, I, I, uh, I was as hard as anybody, I think, on Alex um, when he played. And I actually had a, a, a moment after he, uh, I retired when I was with uh, the other sports network that will remain nameless. But we were uh, we were covering them, and I actually had a chance. I went in one morning early in spring training and, and made a point to introduce myself, say hello to him, and, and apologize for for the things that that I had said about him over his career. Uh, and it came after an article came out after. Remember when he got caught? And there was a big article about him talking to his kids and explaining to his daughters. And it was at a period of time in my life when when I was going through some really rough stuff off the field. And I had had that conversation. And as a father, I kind of identified with it. And I, you know, um, but I had a chance to, 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 to cover smooth over it. They were both. Alex was so good that he was easy to pitch to. And by that, I mean, Alex was a guy and, and I have this in my notebook and I'll, I mean, I still have it. I, I literally wrote it down. No repeat pitch, no repeat location, no repeat pattern, which means very simply, I had to have three pitches that I could locate in multiple places every single at bat against him. And if if I couldn't, then that was going to be a problem. Derek was different. Early in my career, to the point where I think I lost my velocity, I I had his number. I I because he hit the Yankee Stadium, and he played the ball to 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 right center right field, and he did that even when he wasn't in Yankee Stadium. So for me, Derek was all about hard in, hard in, hard in, hard in, and, and not really mixing it up a lot, but just hard in. And I threw the ball 96 to 98. And then, you know, in my mind, I could dot a Nat's ass in 60 feet. So if I'm going to miss in, I'm going to knock him on his butt or something to that effect. So I stayed in. When I lost my velocity, he started to wear me out a little bit uh, because I could, I didn't have the stuff to mix it up on him and get him out. But both of them were... I would tell you there were guys in my career, a list of 10 or 15, who every at bat, no matter what the date of the game was from spring training to World Series, got everything I had with every pitch, and those were two of the guys. Kurt Schilling has been our guest on OutKick 360. Kurt, we wanted to have you on to discuss like the best bullpen moves and all this stuff at the trade deadline. I hope you enjoyed the, the storytelling there because we did. I, I don't mind. Baseball's okay. baseball. Man. Oh, yeah, man. And uh, we would love to pick back up at some point down the road with you as well, if possible. Anytime. Uh, Anytime. Is, is there one move that comes to mind for you at the trade deadline that is a game changer? I got to tell you, I, I, I'm not a big gambler, but yeah. I made a very big wager uh, before today. After the Yankees got uh, – or I'm sorry, after the Padres got Hater from Milwaukee, I, I, I put all my money in on they, there's no doubt in my mind they were going to land they were going to be the team that got Soto because that hater move isn't made by a team that is trying to you know feel its way into the postseason that's a team that's saying hey okay, listen we're going all in and I, I I I guess I disagree with the fact that they needed Soto to keep up with the Dodgers I because I don't think you keep up with the team offensively I think you neutralize that with pitching and I thought the hater move was was that kind of a move. Um, Everybody that I've heard and talked to and everything that I've seen, the prospect call uh, was pretty ginormous for, for the Nationals with the potential to have, you know, three potential all-stars, maybe four or five big league players. And I got to tell you, I'm not sure of any player I've ever known that was worth five big leaguers. And, and so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. The difference is this is a very different deal. They have him for a couple years in, in, in San Diego. I mean, the thing to watch for me, is that his defensive metrics have plummeted in Washington over the last year, and he's going to San Diego, which might be one of the largest outfields in all baseball. Good point. 
Kurt Schilling has That's been great. our guest. Kurt, thank you for the time, man. And uh, we Take will care, guys. We'll thank catch you. up soon. Thanks. Yeah. Terrific. Thanks, Kurt. All right. That's a terrific point. Yes. Let's yeah. watch Soto's defense. The Yankees had concerns about that. I, I wish Stanton's we already not a that good I, I haven't heard from anyone else to be on the lookout for with yeah. Soto. It's all about well, it's offense. Wrong park. Him. Wrong I, park. I wish we had uh, Kurt on yesterday so we would have known to make that move on, at FanDuel. Yeah. yeah. We could have made <laughs> some I'm money. I'm still locked out of my account. <laughs> So it wouldn't have mattered. You could have given me some cash. I have to send them it. a picture of me holding up the date yeah. and a copy of my driver's license. It sounds like a hostage <laughs> situation. <laughs> Today's newspaper, please, sir. Yeah, it's legit. What I'm hearing is Davey needs to pick it up and give us a heads yeah. up when Kurt's got the bet to make uh, on FanDuel or wherever. So we need to get a heads up on that next time. From the mound to the plate, Jim Lairitz my joins guy. us next on Outkick 360. Wrong uniform. Outkick 360 rolls on across the Outkick network. Jim Lairitz will join us momentarily. Uh, some NFL news on the field today at training camp. Tim Patrick, wide receiver for the Broncos, tore his ACL at practice today. He, of course, will miss the entire 2022 NFL season. That's not the only ACL injury today. Uh, for the Broncos, right? Yeah, second player, uh, who I'm not familiar with, not high-ranking, um, also uh, told people he's out with the ACL. With the same injury. Yeah, so a bad day for the Broncos. So Patrick was going to factor in as one of the big three receivers that was sticking around for Russell Wilson. So now they've got Cortland Sutton, Jerry Judy. Uh, they have K.J. Hamler who can ch uh, step in. Uh, a few others. They've got a couple of... Um, uh, undrafted free agent wide receivers that are working in the mix there as well. Uh, but not good news. And really, uh, him and James Washington, uh, wide receiver down in Dallas now. Fractured foot. The, yeah, the two big injuries uh, of this week thus far. There was and an so injury. Washington injury and Gallup are both missing the beginning of the season yeah. for the Cowboys. Yeah. There was an injury, injury scare a bit uh, yesterday with um, Mahomes where he clearly tweaked an ankle and went into the tent the shocking thing for me on that was that he came back out with an, an ankle wrapped and finished practice. Yeah, that's and then came back out today. Like I, that stuff you just don't see, right? That's a game. If a guy day goes thing. in, a quarterback <laughs> goes in, you you usually take the rest of the deck. Jim Lairitz uh, about to join us. Um, so the backstory uh, here with with Jim, I met him at an event with Titan safety Kevin Byard. And free agent at the time, wide receiver Golden Tate, a couple of months ago. Uh, Golden was briefly with the Titans on the practice squad at the tail end of last season. Five, six weeks. Yeah. And then he stuck around. He's from the area here. And joined Bayard for a, a great event uh, in, Nash uh, excuse me, in Murfreesboro that uh, helps out by sending kids to football camp. And Jim Lairitz was in the audience. And met him after the event. He came up and we just briefly chatted. And he was like, if you ever, I said, if, I'd love to you know, get you on the show. We'll talk some ball at some point if you're, you're into that. And he's like, yeah, here's my number. And it was that simple. And you know, a few months later, I shoot Jim a, a text. And he immediately gets back to me. Here's two-time World Series champion Jim Lairitz on Outkick 360. Jim, hope you're well. I'm doing good. How are you guys doing tonight? We hey. are great. Fantastic. I am particularly great. <laughs> Because Chad down there is a Braves guy. I am a Yankees guy since 76. 
And the captain just served as a huge reminder, ran us through 96. And I, I don't think either of us realized just how bad it was for the Yanks, having lost 12-1 and 4-0 before gotten to 2-1 in games, then down 6 nothing in the sixth. It looked like they were talking like the series was over, chipped away to get to, to 6-3 before you came up and belted the three-run homer. That just turned his team into the losers that they were. You broke broke my 14-year-old heart. I was (laughs) watching that game from a hotel in Knoxville, staying there with my grandfather, who was taking me to a Tennessee-Alabama game. I want to say it was either the next day or it was the night after the game on a Saturday night. It was a Friday or Saturday night game. Watch that... um, Watch that home run happen while I believe my grandfather was down at the hotel bar having drinks. <laughs> Take us through <laughs> your glory years old. Moment, I was Jim. by myself as the only baseball fan on the trip and uh, watched you just rip the heart out of Take the Take us through your glory moment, our glory moment, yours and mine. So, so every time I hear that story from a, a Braves fan, I always say this, I'm sorry to make the story worse than just the home run and just that game because... There was two scouts that were sitting up in John Schultz's booth that night that had a chance to draft me out of high school in Cincinnati, Ohio. And my dad, they asked my dad how much it would take to sign me. And my dad said, give him 10 grand. And they said, we could only give him five. And those two scouts were in that booth and John Schultz and looked at each other and said, do not tell Schultz for $5,000, we could have changed this entire scenario. <laughs> Un- it was terrific. Unbelievable. How much do you Did know? Did you flip them off on your way around the bases? <laughs> <laughs> do you find a booth and then, hey, let's let's point out these guys. How do you feel about what the Yankees have done before the deadline with Benintendi and now Montes, Trevino, and Efros uh, to, to solidify this the, the staff? Well, listen, I'll tell you one thing. I mean, Brian Cashman is looking like a genius because we didn't give up our top prospects. Um, and we, we reloaded pretty well. They got rid of Gallo surprising that they even got something in return, but they did. Um, and I think some, there were some great moves that were made. I mean, right now you're, you know, you're watching everybody else. I mean, the Padres have gone full tilt, uh, with what they're doing. Uh, but I think the Yankees are, are stronger today than they were yesterday. And that makes, and I'm not saying for the season, cause they've always won 90, hundred games. The postseason has been their Achilles heel. And I think for finally, they have a team that is ready for a postseason run like they haven't had in the past. Jim Lair, it's our guest on Outkick 360. Are you, are you watching the captain, uh, the documentary series yeah. on, on Jeter as much as the, the rest of the country seems to be watching? Yeah, so, so they, did a, they did a screening at the at this Yankee Stadium. They showed the first two episodes. They invited Derek there. I was there that night and I watched the first two episodes with Derek and I looked at him after the second episode and I said, Hey dude, I really got to thank you because you made me relevant again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm watching and loving it. Just, just like I love the last dance of the bulls, just revisiting that era of the game and, you know, going through, uh, I joke, but you know, I watched the home run derby and, and then right after, I watched the mid-90s Mariners team, and I'm thinking, I know every single player on this Mariners team that the Yankees are playing, and I didn't know the kid from the Mariners who just almost won the home run derby at the time. You know, I got really freshed right. up on the day's game. 
But that era yeah. of the game and how quickly Derek Jeter ingratiated himself with that locker room and with that city is what really amazed me. And I watch it, Jim, and I, I see a guy that while he's very likable and is a guy you believe in, he's a guy you don't want to cross. And I think that comes across well while he's talking about playing the game. Did you sense that with him also? Well, you know, I, I that, that night that I was at the stadium, I sat with the producer, Randy Wilkins. And, you know, I was talking to Randy. I'm like, listen, you don't need to even interview me. And my first, my home runs were the most important thing in the beginning of Derek's career. <laughs> and he said, yeah, he goes, we couldn't get everybody that we wanted to. But he said, the really crazy thing, Jimmy, that you're going to see in this documentary is a side of Derek you've probably never seen. Because during his career, he kept everything PC. He didn't say anything to create controversy. He didn't say anything that would upend. And during these seven-part series, he gets pretty raw with his feelings and how he felt as it, as it goes on, you know, his later years with the Yankees, some of the problems he had with Cashman, some of the problems, the reason why he has never really been back to Yankee Stadium. He gets pretty raw about those things. And uh, that was a pretty cool side to see about Derek that you don't normally see. Jim, in your time there, are you are – you- Cognizant of the fact that you're living in a moment that's going to be recognized years down the road with him and, and the way that team was built and the way it came together? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people forget about all, all of the obstacles. You know, when they look at Derek Jeter, they think this guy's had a story career, Hollywood ending, all these great things, the, the best looking women in the world. This guy's had, you know, the silver spoon in his mouth, but they don't realize really all of the hardships and the things that it took to keep where he was, to stay where he was, to stay out of trouble where he was, and just how, you know, how, how much of a great job that he did being a guy playing in New York for 20 years at the level that he played at with the scrutiny that he went through to stay clean through most of it, it was pretty special. So you're, you're in New York, you know, mid-90s, you're out in 97, you're back 99-2000. What was the shift like in that clubhouse in terms of leadership? Who set the tone for that first world championship in 96 in that locker room? And how much different was it with Derek and his leadership and everyone else when you came back in 99? Yeah, I mean, like we mentioned, you know, Derek, when he started in 96, only because Tony Fernandez broke his hand, you know, had that not happened, Derek Jeter wouldn't be in the big leagues. And I always tell people, whenever there's a Derek Jeter celebration, when Tony was still alive, God rest his soul, um, I, that I thought Tony should be invited because he's the reason Derek started in 96. But the one thing that you could tell about Derek from the beginning is he had this, I always say the Don Mattingly type of at- attitude. He wasn't a big rah-rah guy. He wasn't a big cheerleader, but he led by example he led by the hard work that he put in every day, and you respected that. And then, of course, for him to do what he did in 96, to do what he did in 98, uh, and by 99 when I came back, I was kind of curious to see if this kid who had all the success would let it go to his head. And when I showed up in Texas, in the heat of Texas uh, in 99, he still was taking 200 ground balls. He was still taking 250 swings in the cage. He never let his pre-workout get in the way. And that's why he played at the level he did for so long. 
What was O'Neill's role in the in the leadership packing order there? Same thing. He was a guy that expected perfection from himself. He was never satisfied, just like Derek. You know what? He could go three for four. And if we didn't win, he'd be ticked off. Um, and, and again, his temperament gave a little bit of a personality to our ball club that, you know, that, that, that was needed because a lot of guys were PC guys, but you had guys like myself, Daryl Strawberry, you know, guys like Paul that had a little bit of a personality that kept the team a little more and a little more fiery. I was a huge uh, Daryl Strawberry fan growing up. I didn't realize he was so much of a likes to fight guy until I watched this docuseries. He was in the middle of everything. Anytime someone crossed you guys, Daryl Strawberry was the first guy to go across the, the diamond and, and pop somebody. Well, yeah, people always say to me, why did Don Zimmer run out in 2004 and do that? I said, because Daryl Strawberry and Jim Lairitz weren't there to help. <laughs> <laughs> that loss to the Mariners the year before the first championships, well represented in, in, uh, in the Jeter series um, and Mattingly's last, last game there in Seattle. Uh, they talk about him coming on the plane and, and thanking some guys, knowing that that he was going to retire there. How how sentimental was that, and how much did you guys kind of know that as as bad as that was, the ending to that season, that you're on the brink of something there? Yeah, you know, we all knew from the beginning of the year that this was Donnie's last year. Um, he was not going to play another season. His back was too screwed up. I mean, most people don't, didn't see again the five or six hours of pre-work, you know, swimming in the hotel pool at nine o'clock in the morning, trying to get himself loose so he could actually get to the ballpark and take batting practice and try to get, you know, try to get ready to play. People didn't see all that, but we did. And we knew it was his last year. And for someone like him, who was such a great Yankee, uh, and, and people always ask me, who was your female, favorite teammate ever? I always say first, I played with Donnie for five years. There has not been a better person that I ever played with in the game than Don Mattingly. Um, but, and Buck Walter really made it a point that year that said, we need to get him to the playoffs. And when we got the wild card, when Pat Kelly hit the home run in Toronto to seal the wild card, we knew we were taking Donnie, you know, we were taking Donnie to the uh, playoffs for the first time. It was a huge, huge boost for us. And of course, you know, we win the first two games. We thought we were going to come back for more. And the only thing that we regret is we didn't give Donnie the proper send-off, not knowing we weren't going to come back. Jim Laritz, our guest on OutKick 360. Jim, I recently wrote a column at OutKick about uh, what I would consider the good old days. Everyone looks to their childhood as the good old days. Where growing up, we're all baseball fans. We, we knew the players' names. We knew the lineups. We knew uh, the nicknames and the batting stances. If we're playing wiffle ball, we could mimic the batting stances. You certainly uh, were, were well-known in the late 90s uh, with the batting stance, uh, which we just don't see uh, that unique aspect and personality today across the game. We see it some, but not nearly to the extent as it used to be. Um, who taught you the batting stance, or did it just, for some reason, was it just natural and comfortable for you? Now it actually goes back to my senior year in high school. I was supposed to be drafted by your Braves. <laughs> and I broke my foot, but I just fractured it. I was only going to be out two or three weeks. And the Brave Scout told me he was going to come watch me play at the end of the summer. And I said, okay. And so I told my dad, listen, 
put an air cast on my foot. I want to take batting practice every day. So when I'm able to play, I am ready. I'm not out of shape. And so they put a cast on my left leg and I couldn't put pressure on it. And I took batting practice every day for three weeks with that leg stiff. And it just became something that, you know, felt natural after they finally took it off. And of course, turned out to be uh, my stance for my entire career. Wow. Amazing. What, what was the transition like from Buck Walter in 95 to Joe Torrey in 96? It obviously worked out well for the Yankees, but how different were those personalities? Well, yeah, it was completely different. I mean, Buck Walter was probably the smartest, most intelligent manager I have ever played for in, in, in any, any line of a college, high school, even professional. Uh, the, the smartest manager I ever played for. But early in his career, and Buck will tell you, he didn't have much of a personality and he didn't get along with all the players. He had, he, you know, he wasn't uh, personable enough to get along with everybody. And that was where he had some trouble. Joe Torrey came in in 96. He had the squad to win. All he had to do was manage personalities. And that was his forte. He was one of the best managers of people that I have ever seen in my entire life. He was able to turn your ego off. He was able to, you know, guys like myself, who were complaining about playing, he was able to make us feel like, no, even if you're not playing, you're still going to be important to this team. He was so good at that. And then, of course, he hired Don Zimmer to sit next to him that knew everything about the game. That combination of those two, there was nobody better in the game than, than Don Zimmer and Joe Torrey. Since you've already rained on my parade, uh, I'm going to get personal again here with this. Did you cross paths at all with David Justice in the city of Cincinnati? When you were growing up, he was—he's my all-time favorite player as a kid. I know you both grew up in Cincinnati high school baseball. Well, and basketball, because basketball was my number one sport, also, just like David. Um, but we never—I think he was—I want to say he was three or four years behind me. So we never crossed paths. But everybody talked about you were the—you know—you and David Justice as the big two sports athletes coming out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Hey, so uh, I'm noticing uh, on your Twitter account, Jim, it says three-time World Series champ in the bio. Yes. We've said two. Others uh, across other visits introduce you as a two-time World Series champ. Um, why do we get it wrong so often? So here's the funny thing. So when they did the core four and they included Jorge Posada, Jorge Posada, they called him a five-time World Series champion. And he was not on the 96 championship team. So even though he got a ring and a check because he played somewhat during the 96 season, they considered that a five-time World Series champion. So when I heard that at age 55, I said to myself, wait a minute. I was on the 2000 team all the way till August. They gave me a ring. They gave me a check. I'm a three-time World Series champion, too. <laughs> if they gave it uh, to I, you, man, you've got three rings. Yeah. you got the ring. It's true. You have the ring. It's true. I mean, you're, you're a champion. Congratulations, exactly. by the way, on that third championship. We stand so. corrected. Yes. Jim, I, I hope you'll, uh, I hope you'll uh, definitely 
pop back on the show uh, from time to time. This has been an awesome chat down memory lane, but we, we certainly want to chat some postseason baseball with you, too, as they make the turn. While the Yankees are ripping through the playoffs. I, I would love to get your review of each episode of the captain also, and you tell us what you like the most about it. If you didn't like something, if something was factually a little bit off, please join us and tell us. I am more than willing. I got, I'm got. i having surgery on my bicep on Thursday. I'll have plenty of downtime to do a lot of talking during the playoffs and World Series. But here's what I really want to do. Yeah. I want on a campaign when you get a team in Nashville to bring me into the front office and let me be a part of bringing baseball to Nashville because that's where I want to end my career and, 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 and raise my, you know, raise my grandkids. Uh, for the Nashville baseball team. Jim, as long as you don't hire um, a scout that butchers things the way that Brave Scout did years ago and did not go (laughs) up to $10,000, if you promise to do that and hire better scouts, then we'll we'll petition for you. We can definitely do that. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thank you, Jim. We appreciate you. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Uh, Jim Lairitz there uh, on Twitter at uh, the real Jim Lairitz. I'd love to meet the fake Jim Lairitz. Uh, we won't give him the Twitter account. Who take you back to a time and a place, man. That's that's one. Uh, really, really cool dude. Um, and uh, again, very gracious with us there. And uh, just a, a random encounter uh, at a charity event where he was helping out Bayard and others uh, in Murfreesboro. Um, hit us up on Twitter today. It's been a very pass, uh, fast-paced show uh, with a lot of news on the Last NFL. Two shows have been that Major way. League Baseball yep. and others, uh, other headlines. Hit us up with your take there at Outkick360. If you missed portions of the show, you can always find it wherever you download your podcast. We will recap the big headlines that you need to know about today when we return on Outkick360. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Appreciate all the great stations across the network that uh, you may be currently listening to right now. We appreciate that. Hit us up on Twitter at Outkick360. You can follow us on Facebook, the live stream available there, as well as YouTube. Subscribe to the page, searching Outkick360. So the Miami Dolphins were docked a first-round pick next year, plus a third-round pick in 2024. That uh, also goes with a $1.5 million fine for Stephen Ross, the owner. Not for tanking games or the alleged $100,000 proposal to Brian Flores to lose on purpose. It was for tampering with Tom Brady and Sean Payton. 2019, uh, Brady met with them. And same goes for December of last year. Uh, The league says that Brady met with them about potentially playing. And then last year, it was more about ownership or having an executive's role in the front office. And also, Sean Payton potentially, uh, they would have to trade for him, of course, but trade for him, and then uh, he would be the head coach of the the Miami Dolphins. 
that was the the penalty that came down. And I should also mention that uh, that Stephen Ross isn't around the team for a couple of months. It's the middle of October when he can return. That is the on the lenient side of things in terms of the penalty itself. Can we get to the real big news of the day? Yes, please. That just, that just broke. Um, Dane Cook, this according to page six, 50 years old, has now engaged to his longtime love, Kelsey Taylor, who is 23. Long time. Long time love, Kelsey Taylor, 23. Click on the story at page six, and uh, it's uh, long. five years. Which raises some interesting questions about uh, about Dane Cook. Well, and, I mean, honestly, and Kelsey if it's Taylor, eighteenth birthday, five years into a relationship is when the guy is really starting to hear about the put up or shut up time. Yeah, with the engagement. So, I mean, Just I guess that is a long. It started at forty five and eighteen relationship. Yes. <laughs> no, it is a long time. Yeah, but we're saying the beginning of the long time was right when he was allowed to begin. I have not heard from Dane Cook in a long time. Dane Cook was on yeah. fire from 2001 to 2006. He starred in a few movies in the in the mid aughts and then disappeared. Then he was no longer on fire. He was no he 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 had the, he had a window of time, and that time ended. Disappeared. And that time is not now. Well, actually, it is now. now. He's back in the news. Now he's back. Yes, marrying his 23 year old longtime love. Juan Soto to the Padres. That's the mega news. Is the MLB trade deadline uh, is about to hit. Um, a reporter out of Washington says the Nationals had Bryce Harper, Anthony Rendon, Max Scherzer, Trey Turner, and Juan Soto, and all gone in a matter of a few years. And got course, a World Series out of it. Uh, of course, the Astros had George Springer, Carlos Carrera, Carrera, Charlie Morton, Garrett Cole. They're all gone, and the team is currently 67-37. and 37. And That's amazing. Putting Only fear two in games the off. hearts and minds of Paul Kuharski. Only two Yankees games fans. off, home field. Another busy show in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. We are back at it tomorrow. Jake Cutler joins us as well as many more headlines on Outkick 360. I beg of you, do not block the box, but kindly lock your locks.